This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, we got an update on work in America, that's for sure. Coming in weaker than forecast, uh, I love our headline. The latest jobs report showing the U.S. labor market is cracking but not crumbling. Take that one. All right, let's talk about it with uh, Francis Donald, who is chief economist, head of macroeconomic strategy over at Manulife Asset Management, on the phone from Toronto, along with our own Vince Signorella. He's our global macro strategist at Bloomberg News. Uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, he's been tracking the numbers and the market and trader reaction today. So we'll get to him on that. Francis, let's start with you. This report, how do you sum it up? Well, it's not going to change anyone's mind on what the Fed's going to do next. There's something for everyone. If you want to be a hawk, you can say the data's fine. There's rising wages. If you want to be a dove, you can say we're structurally moving uh, downward. We're losing momentum and risks are to the downside. So you get to pick and choose what you want. And that actually makes our job as economists and strategists just a little bit harder because it doesn't help to tilt us in one direction or the next. I, I would say the issue here from a longer term perspective isn't so much what does this report mean for the Fed coming up in a couple of weeks. It's really what does this mean for the Fed over the next 12 months. And from my perspective, it implies we're heading towards structurally lower growth. The Fed is going to need to. It's going to want to respond. All right. So, Vince, come on in here. You know, you were talking to traders on desk today. Uh, we know what the trade looks like. And, and Francis just laid it out nicely what joe weisenthal said earlier is sort of a rorschach test you know you sort of get to see what you want uh in this report how was the street digesting it initially they didn't like it i mean the equity sold off risk sold off uh out of the gate but then i think you know the market sort of stabilized they got their feet back under them and realized just what francis was saying it doesn't mean anything in the short run the fed will probably still cut uh in september uh, that buoyed the Treasury market, it buoyed risk, and then the dollar traded off. So it was just, it was a kind of a stutter step to it. It took a little while for the market to grab hold of it. And I'm curious, what about roll in the Jay Powell comments? I'm curious if you guys saw any kind of movement on that. You know, or inter- we, were, or reaction we were talking to it. about that just before I got out here, and Jay Powell's comments that would have or should have moved the market came in around 1245 which were, you know, economic, our, our economic forecasts, the risks are to the downside, yet the market didn't actually really move to one. And for me watching it, it really looked like a, an algo cross-asset uh, buy program went through. Right, because it pulled back a little bit, right? It, it did, but then all of a sudden that, yeah. the stocks rallied, high-yield ETFs rallied, gold traded off, uh, oil, oil spiked. So it, ju- it just looked like somebody pushed a button right at 1 o'clock. But I can't say yeah. that for sure. I can just see what I see. So, Francis, beyond jobs, it feels like there were some other things capturing people's attention in the market as well. What was most notable for you? Well, Jay Powell's speech was really critical. I know a lot of people were waiting to hear from him before they made revisions to their September call. And just listening to him, he's he's a smart man. He knows he could communicate anything to us in that speech. He did not sound like somebody who is trying to prepare the market for a 50 basis point cut. So I think anyone who's on the outlier there with that 50 basis point call is going to have to reevaluate back towards 25 basis points. But amidst this whole day where it's been very U.S.-centric, very FOMC-centric, 
we got a China rate cut. That's where That's I wanted a really to go. Big deal. Good. That is a global easing de- development that we need to be monitoring really closely. In fact, I would argue that a China rate cut of 50 basis points is far more important to global risk assets than whether or not the Fed goes 25 or 50 this month. You're talking about uh, the China Central Bank cutting the amount of cash banks must hold as reserves, right? This is cut to the lowest exactly. level the since tr- 2007. So, yeah, you know, Vince, when we hear that, 2007, we think back to the financial crisis. Yeah, it gives you pause. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Uh, you messaged me about this this morning. Tell me about, you know, what you heard and, and how you read that. The feel from this is that. Um, first of all, I haven't heard anything from my sources in China in two weeks. So they're going dark means China's not doing anything of what we're hearing in terms of making extraordinary inroads in trade. At least that's how I'm interpreting it. And with this type of move, the reserve requirement rate cut is is probably the most significant tool in a central bank's toolbox. They're essentially, to me, it seems like trying to boost the domestic economy, more likely than not because they don't see it coming from international growth nor from any trade news upcoming. So it, it, they're taking an insurance bet on their own economy. And a couple of months ago, she promised the, the leaders of China that the domestic economy was strong enough to weather the U.S. tariffs. So this, I think, is just an insurance uh, on their part to, to keep China's economy going. Um, the rest of the world will take it as a stimulus, I think, for international purposes. But I think this is very much more directed inward than outward. Francis, uh, only about 30 seconds left. What's the next big thing on your list that may you know, make you think differently about this market over the next couple of weeks? Well, China cut rates. We know what the Fed's going to do. The next big question is, does the ECD come through? Does it provide that QE dovish surprise that we're looking for? For me, the next round of stimulus is all about what central banks do with their balance sheet. QT, quantitative tightening, is over. We're heading back into quantitative easing. Now it's just time to get the timing right. Feels like it was a very quick turn for sure. All right, Francis Donald, Chief Economist and Head of Macroeconomic Strategy at Manulife Asset Management on the phone from Toronto. Vince Signorella, Global Macro Strategist. Catch him on the Macro Squawk Desk, SQA, SQUA, go on the Bloomberg. Well, it's always good when someone's betting on themselves, especially at a time when not so long ago people were going, what's going on with this dude? Uh, Bill Ackman, we're talking about making a $500 million bet essentially on himself. Here to tell us more about one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg today, Scott DeVoe, deals reporter for Bloomberg, looking at deals, activism, so much more. He wrote the story. Uh, Tell us what's going on with Bill Ackman. So it's actually been a pretty impressive year for him so far in terms of his returns. He's up about uh, 55% or so uh, on his investments year to date. And because of that, this publicly traded uh, Pershing Square Holdings is actually seeing quite an appreciation in its its price. So last year, he plowed about a half a billion dollars into this this. Uh, this publicly traded arm, and because of the rise in the stock, he's made about two hundred million on that five hundred million dollar bet. So buy low, <laughs> and then watch it go high. Well, he says it's st- he says it's still low. So buy now. And so, what accounts for a, a lot of this performance? Because if we were having this conversation a year ago, as you sort of alluded to, he was on 
kind of a bad run and a, and a very public bad run in a lot of ways, which maybe all of these guys are subject to, but it felt especially hot on him. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of these activist funds are seeing a lot of redemptions, but with Ackman, it was more pronounced. I think uh, at the beginning of <laughs> uh, at the beginning of 2018, uh, we wrote a story basically that two thirds of the people that were able to redeem their uh, money in his private funds did so. Um, and so it looked obviously like things were getting pretty dire. Um, but now he's, you know, stopped with the private funds and he's focusing on this publicly traded vehicle. Um, big gains have been coming, obviously, from Chipotle, which yeah. is one of the biggest mm-hmm. gainers um, uh, on the index this year. Um, other uh, uh, companies like Restaurant Brands, obviously, is doing quite yeah. well with Burger King and now with this Popeye sandwich. Um, Starbucks has been on. Starbucks right? has mm-hmm. been on. So it's been, you know. It's, it, these aren't really active plays for him outside of Chipotle, but they've been really good, um, you know, um, performance-wise, and that's really driven a lot. And of ADP it. is another one, right? Yeah, like and he, he cashed. Really- he finally cashed out of ADP. Uh, remember, obviously, he had that failed uh, proxy contest yes. there, but he held the stock afterwards, and he made about sixty-four percent before he wow. sold out in June. So right. things have been pretty. It's been a pretty good run for him this year. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, take us back to when he made the investment. I mean, he was just he saw value where he felt like others did not yeah and the big thing is is, so the there's a there's a gulf between where uh pershing square holdings trading and what the net asset value is Mm -hmm. and it's about 30 percent. so there's a a discount that's at play there and he's done all all kinds of things like try to do share buybacks put a dividend in um to try to narrow that gap but the fact is it remains and um he just he put his own money where his mouth was and and made a lot of money on it you know, this wasn't all his only holdings in it either. He right. um, he had some existing holdings. So if you put it, add that add it all up, it's actually closer to a quarter of a billion dollars he made. So give us a, a quick look at the activist landscape right now. You're looking at it all the time. Uh, how would you characterize it as we get into a busier part of the year? Yeah, so you're right. This is the this is the busiest part. So what we're going to start seeing over the next little while is a lot of people showing their hand, what they're you know invested in, and we'll get a sense of how the proxy season is going to shape up next year. Um, you know, it's actually getting a little difficult for me because a lot of these things have started to, you know, not be as combative as it used to be. Right. So it's uh, hard to get the headlines, if you know what I mean. So What's uh, going on with that? Well, see, I think boards are more receptive to activists than they were before. And, yeah. and activists, I think, are starting to see the value of being um, – constructive rather than adversarial yeah so we're seeing all kinds of things like like going on right now like so for instance dan loeb and sony you know uh there was one letter recommendation a bunch of stuff that he wanted to see you know not a lot of it came to fruition but the stock's up 30 percent since he took his his position so you know why are you gonna you know poison the well if you're if you're getting 30 percent return and we're seeing it everywhere i mean mm-hmm. ackman's a good example of it he's not he's not the agitator that he w- once was right so he's taking positions you know has ideas and theories on you know where companies should go um and he shares those things and you know utx was a good example for him where you'd think that he would take a, uh, take on a yeah. fight because he didn't like the raytheon deal but he didn't he just sold i like how you end your story about how maybe ackman why he's doing better you guys just just, just got about 30 seconds here <laughs> yeah well obviously you got married and had a uh, 
new baby. baby. Yeah. yeah, so there you go. It changes people. Maybe he, has, people out he said in bit. April, right, that maybe it has something to do with being loved and getting married yeah. for his for his upturn in performance. There Wouldn't be the first guy. Look at you guys. I feel like you guys are all... <laughs> Is there a little uh, sarcasm in there? No, I, I, oh, totally, just I totally agree with it. I totally agree with it. It's a very, very The nice love of note. a good woman. I just, you know? lo- I just love the idea <laughs> of also catching, you know, more flies with honey than vinegar. You know? I know. It's the new activism, so right? So Scott DeVoe. Always love catching up with you, deals reporter for Bloomberg on the activist beat. You know, the kindler, gentler activist beat these days, apparently. Have a great weekend. He finds a song for everything. Paul Brennan, love, love, love. So you may never look at your salt shaker the same way again, thanks to people like Ben Jacobson, who after a detour through Silicon Valley turned his sights on salt. But it's not just any old mixture of sodium and chloride. That story in the special double elements issue of the magazine this week, it's on newsstands online and on our weekend radio and TV broadcast. It is everywhere. So check it out. Uh, The reporter who wrote it, Andrew Zaleski, he is on the phone from Washington, D.C., also in the house in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Love this story. Andrew, tell us about the Salt King, Ben Jacobson. Yeah, so so Ben is a, a salt maker on Oregon's coastline. Uh, he's kind of like a big kid. He, <laughs> he gets really into this stuff. Uh, and so he established this, this salt facility on a on Neetarts Bay in Oregon several years back and has just been making this flaky sea salt ever since. And how big of a how big of a business has he turned this thing into so far? Well, he makes about one hundred eighty thousand pounds of salt a year, so that's roughly roughly eighteen thousand pounds a month. So give or take one hundred eighty thousand. Um, but it's all over the country. I mean, you can find Jacobson Salt in Williams Sonoma stores. You can find it in Whole Foods, uh, and you can find it in restaurants from LA to New York City, all over the place. All right, so I'm going to be the salt skeptic here to Carol's salt connoisseur. There is a difference. You just try different salts, and you'll notice there's a difference. <laughs> uh, okay, so Carol is on board, as you can hear, Andrew, and as you know from talking to us before. But, again, the skeptic. So really, salt, I mean, can it be that good or that much better? Tell us about your experience. Uh, I would say yes. Um, I even bought a bag of his flake salt. Uh, upon leaving his facility uh, and have used it cooking for a while for several weeks and, and I really enjoy it. I mean, the, the thing about salt is if you harvest salt from the sea the way that Jacobson does, you're going to end up boiling out a lot of trace minerals, things like calcium, potassium, magnesium, things that give salt different sorts of tastes and qualities to its texture. When you get a flake salt like how Jacobson makes it, once you have these other minerals boiled out, you get this really crunchy, really sort of nice briny aftertaste salt that's vastly different from table salt you might find at a diner or something like that. And what was the what what did he what spawned this? Where did the idea come from? Uh, he was over in Europe. He was going to business school in Europe, and one evening he he sat down and made a meal of some canned mackerel and some other ingredients. Uh, so pretty pretty basic, pretty sort of college-esque. You just need to eat something. Uh, but someone at the time sort of handed him this, this package of flaky sea salt, and he put it on his meal, and he said it was one of the best meals he ever had just because of the salt. And so once that happened, he came, when he moved back to the States, he, he thought, I, I, need to go, I need to go find some, some 
flaky sea salt out there. He couldn't really find anything aside from the brand he had over in Europe, Malden. And he said, well, let me try making this myself and see what happens. And, and you mentioned he ended up he ended up uh, in my turf in Oregon. Um, actually, didn't mention that part, the Oregon part, but that's where I'm from. And, and I do know exactly where he does this. But what what did he find? Why this particular place on the Oregon? Because it was a really specific spot in Oregon, right? Yeah, I know all about it, but uh, I'm going to pretend I don't. Andrew, go ahead. You're an insider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so so he he harvests his seawater from Neatarts Bay, and in the bay there just thousands of oysters and oysters take uh oysters filter water because they remove calcium from it this is how they build their shells but it was almost like the the beginning part of even jacobson's salt making process got this boost from the fact that there's oyster grounds in this bay who are already pulling some of the calcium out of the water and then when he pumps the the water into his own facility he's still boiling out calcium but it's almost like he gets this little assist from tiny bivalves chilling in the water. Chilling in the water. So the the place that this is on the Oregon coast. This is what this is where I wanted to go Paint next. The you're, you're you wanted me to bring, you bring in yeah. a little bit. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So it's about an hour west of Portland, and the Oregon coast is really rugged. I actually spent a winter on the Oregon coast once, and and winter on the Oregon coast is pretty bleak. So the fact that somebody's actually found a thing to do there year round was like newsflash to me, and uh, the you know there's old industry there, there's crabbing, but it's it's basically pretty quiet, quaint place. So the fact that this guy's creating jobs, and you know we've talked about this again and again every time that we've talked about a story from the issue, the elements issue. The fact that somebody can recognize that, oh, wait, there's an element on the periodic table, and I can harness that and turn that into a business, I think this story is like really the perfect encapsulation of the issue, because it's an entrepreneur who found a problem, hey, salt, salt isn't as good as it could be, and then he found a new way to do it, and suddenly has created this thriving little business. But so, Andrew, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the process that he goes through to actually get the product to, to be as good as it does, th- that it comes out as. So what is that What is that process, as best as you can describe? Right. So once you, once you pump in the bay water, it goes into these boiling tanks, two enormous boiling tanks. I think in the story I said, think of the size of a monster truck tire, and you have the circumference of these boiling tanks. It's boiled out, then it goes into all of these old oyster pans in uh, kind of a low-boiling room, let's call it. And you have this kind of almost jello-like viscous water sitting in these oyster pans uh, being slowly boiled, and this is, how, this is how you get the flakes. So over time, this flake salt becomes denser than the water, it drifts to the bottom, and then they rake it out with these big shovels. From there, it goes into these two big dehydrator rooms. It's like a sauna for salt. Um, and over time, it gets drier. You, you, you get all the, all the wetness out of it. And then from there, it goes into packaging. Some, some of the salt they take is, is still wet, and they use it for these uh, like wet infusions, they call them. So like flavored salts, they have a, a, a stump town coffee yeah. salts or stump Pino, town Pinot Noir being Oregon, you know, the Pinots yeah. are great. Yeah, yeah, right. Right, so they have all these flavors, and then the, with the, the salt that they've dried out completely, they'll take that back to another facility in Portland 
that Jacobson has, and they'll do other right. infusions there, like dry infusions. So I got to tell you, chili lime. You have, two, like you have five seconds. When, when I left Portland because I was out recently, Jacobson salt. It's all over Is everything. Really? In the, everything leaving the airport. You're like, oh, maybe I need some Jacobson salt with that. I love gourmet salt. I'm just going to say. Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Andrew Zaleski, great, great story. Check it out. Uh, he wrote it. He's joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek, and this is Bloomberg. Ethereum pays for my rent. Bitcoin pays for the vent. Litecoin pays for the jet. Cryptocurrencies, man, they came up during the panel in Zurich that Fed Chair Jay Powell participated in today. Specifically, they talked about Facebook's Libra. For some thoughts on that and really the cryptocurrency world, let's bring in one avid crypto investor. Jalak Jobanputra is founding partner at Future Perfect Ventures here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. And can I just say, what a cool name. How'd you come up with that? <laughs> I, I can't take credit for uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, you were talking about Future Perfect yes. Ventures? Yeah, I yeah, thought yeah, you were yeah. talking about my name. Well, your name is cool, too, but Future Perfect, yes. Uh, well, yeah. it goes back to uh, me being an English major yes. when I first to, applied right? to college. That, and yeah. and uh, names are hard to come by. Everything's taken. And, well, and, and I'm so, it's so good. <laughs> just this is a diversion, obviously, but I'm so happy when we meet someone who has a fund that it's not like, you know, Cove Harbor or something. You know what I mean? Like in private equity and venture capital, it's like these like weird place names or after, you know, minerals or something. Anyway, go Cove on. Harbor. We're really sorry that we, that Jason just said that on air. <laughs> yeah, that's probably one. There are actually a few that I thought of that I didn't say. Uh, in any case, uh, you set out to invest in sort of crypto, Bitcoin. Like, where are we right now? Because so many headlines, so much enthusiasm countered by skepticism. Give us a realistic look here. Well, we're still in very, very early days. Uh, I started investing in, in the internet in uh, 1995, and I would say that's about the place we're at right now. Um, we have seen some build out of cryptocurrencies. We have Bitcoin, which has started to gain some traction, Ethereum, um, but we've also gone through a lot of volatility in the sector. And um, I'm not sure all businesses and, and people realize all the potential quite yet because a lot of the technology still has to be built out. It, it's, it's like, you know, we didn't have mobile phones. We, we couldn't uh, have Netflix in, in 1994 uh, because the broadband infrastructure so, wasn't there. So, so good idea, but we need the infrastructure? Yes. Is that where we're getting to? And I do yeah. wonder how Libra plays into this. Jason and I were talking in the newsroom that I feel like, you know, the last couple of years it was Bitcoin and all these other things. And all of a sudden it's like Facebook wants to do something and now Jay Powell head of the Federal Reserve is getting questions about that. Absolutely. I I think there have been a lot of conversations uh, within the industry about regulation, the SEC, the CFTC, uh, regulators around the world paying attention. But Facebook's announcement really kick-started those conversations or put them in higher gear. Uh, Because if you think about the fact that Facebook has over 2 billion users around the world, if they all use the same currency, the Libra currency, uh, that may create uh, lower demand for other fiat currencies, sovereign fiat currencies. And I think that's what a lot of the central banks and regulators are concerned about. And so from the regulatory perspective, there was a big Andreessen Horowitz meeting. I mean, recently, tell us about that and and why it matters, because it does feel like we need some convenings or at least some 
uh, some sort of agreement on what this is going to look like, right, from a regulatory framework perspective. Absolutely. I was fortunate enough to be, have been invited to that meeting uh, back in May. I think it was a great thing that uh, Andreessen Horowitz did because it really, for the first time, brought together regulators from many different divisions uh, to interact with the industry, with startups, as well as investors, as well as trade organizations. Uh, so we could really have one-on-one conversations. So part of it was uh, were panels, and but it was really that uh, those separate conversations where I think they learned a lot. We got to learn their perspective right. and and uh, their concerns about the sector, and it was it was a very positive experience. Jellic, one thing I want to ask you is, you know, what will ultimately determine the value of a cryptocurrency? Right, when we have currencies today, it's tied to a country and the health of a particular country, their economic system, their financial system. So I'm curious, what will ultimately determine the value? And can we have a world where there's multiple cryptocurrencies? Yeah, so I like to separate out cryptocurrencies from digital currencies. what we're seeing China come out with, and even Libra to a certain extent, I view as a digital currency. It's a digital manifestation of, of a currency. Something like Bitcoin is different, where there's no one entity that controls it or will control it, or even a smaller group of entities. If you look at Libra, it's going to have a group of 100 companies that will govern it. Bitcoin doesn't have that. Right. There, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands, uh, potentially millions of computers around the world that run that code. Uh, so I, I think if we look at sovereign digital currencies, that's simply a digital representation of, of say, the dollar or a, uh, the rupee. And, and those are all conversations that are happening. Uh, come back at some point because yeah. I feel like I really did. You know, I thought that was really important. Your distinction between digital versus crypto, and I think we've all got to get kind of smarter about this world. And you helped us do that. Thank you so much, um, Jalak uh, Jabamputra. She is founding partner of Future Perfect Ventures uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I feel like we will continue to have more and more smarter conversations. Like For we sure, just had. Thank yeah, you. that really helped us frame the debate. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close. Jim Russell, principal and portfolio manager out at Ball and Gainer. He joins us on the phone from Cincinnati. Back with us. They manage a little over $33 billion. So they know a lot about what's going on in the market. So, Jim, give us some perspective as we roll into a almost fall Friday, a week where the S&P is going to end up, I believe, on an upswing for the weeks. What did you make of this shortened trading week and, and what really was driving it? You know, we think a lot of things uh, that the market was looking for maybe were at play. We got a little bit of good news out of Hong Kong, uh, perhaps uh, from a political standpoint. The ISM service numbers look pretty solid. We would give today's employment report 
maybe a gentleman's B. Uh, it was a little short on headline, but the work week and the wages looked constructive for continued consumer uh, spending here domestically. And of course, uh, the big announcement was that it looks like that uh, a formal trade uh, meeting will occur in Washington in October. So I think if you add all of those things up, that uh, it maybe gave a better tone, a better bid to the market this week. Yeah. Is it enough to maybe change some investment decisions, make some moves here as a result? It, that's a great question. Um, we do think the market, and I know this sounds nutty, the, the market is a bit uh, dependent on some of the tweets, some of the developments, especially uh, on the China trade negotiations. We do think that uh, the market's almost beholden to developments there, uh, very much like the Yellen um Fed was data dependent. We think the market is somewhat tweet dependent at this particular time. There's no question that third quarter earnings will reflect uh, concerns around trade, around exports, maybe a little bit of earnings weakness, perhaps even a negative year over year comparison, third quarter over third quarter. And so we do think that the market would be willing to look over near term earnings weakness if there was some promise that uh, things are getting a a little bit better on the trade front. So I do think the Fed will help in September. So we think that the, one of the key missing pieces for the fall months uh, will be developments in the trade negotiation. And so given all that backdrop, you know, a few months left in the year here, Jim, what types of companies are you looking for? Are there specific sectors that you tend to gravitate toward with this kind of backdrop? Yeah, Jason, we are we are dividend growth investors here at Ball and Gainer on the equity side, and so uh, we have enjoyed, frankly, pretty good flows into our type of strategy as some of the concerns uh, around trade, around economic uh, recessionary concerns, around economic slowdown concerns have materialized over the last several months. We have enjoyed dividend growth, uh, even when dividend growth wasn't cool. <laughs> so this is what we do all the time uh, when the market markets do get rocky. Uh, we are able to retain value, meaning our stocks don't go down much. And we are uh, participants on up days like today. So uh, we, are, we are a bottom-up shop as opposed to top-down, meaning that we don't really invest thematically. Uh, we do look for individual companies with great operating cash flow that it can increase their dividends every single year consistently without borrowing, without flowing, floating equity, without selling a division. Uh, and we give our clients a 7 or 8% raise just from the dividend flow every single year. Plus, of course, on years like this, capital appreciation on top of that. So we have a defensive, cautious uh, overlay uh, by definition. And so we are seeing some individual opportunities as we move into the fall months. Hey, listen, uh, something that caught my attention earlier, I was reading in uh, some research from our Bloomberg uh, intelligence team, our equity strategy team led by Gina Martin Adams. And they said all our preconditions for the S&P 500 bull market to resume a close above resistance at the 50-day moving average confirmed by RSI, that's relative strength index momentum, a positive reversal in the tech utilities ratio and recovery in semiconductor stocks have been met and they write, to light a fire strong enough to carry the index beyond former peaks, the Russell 2000, so small caps, will need to break above its 50-week moving average. And right. that's less than 1% away. Um, small caps, they're saying, right. should be the next in line. Do you agree? 
that's a great question as well. I, certainly, there's better value perhaps in the small caps. You know, all things being equal, if you're worried about kind of global uh, global trade concerns, economic weakness in Europe, Asia, and maybe around the world beyond that, uh, then all things being equal, small caps should be kind of the domestic play. And if, and if it's true that the United States is maybe the best house in an okay neighborhood economically, small caps should be ready to go. Uh, we think that small caps is maybe, maybe taking a step back, call it maybe from the spring through current months, because of a risk-off tone uh, to the marketplace. We think that individual investors especially are very skittish, very skeptical on equities. And of course, funds flows have confirmed that with most uh, you know, individual investors selling equities and buying fixed income instruments. We think that the small caps unnecessarily have gotten caught up in that trade. So we do think that there's a good risk-reward uh, balance and uh, opportunity within small caps. So, Jim, speaking of risks and rewards, what's the single biz- biggest risk uh, coming up in the next month or two? Boy, that's a good question. We we think that probably uh, third quarter earnings might might pose that risk. Um, we do think that because of the scheduling of the October uh, trade meeting, uh, that is uh, already set. We think the Fed uh, is uh, very much previewing a 25 basis point cut in mid-September. And we think that should there be a risk out there, it's probably in the area of much lower earnings than, than we than we forecast for 3Q. And again, we're looking for about a 1% decline year over year in third quarter earnings for the S&P 500. All right, Jim, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Hope you have a great weekend out there in Cincinnati. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.